Chapter 27 of A History of California by Robert Class Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 The Discontented Seventies. The building of the Central Pacific Railroad overcame some of the most serious transportation difficulties of California, but it left unsolved and in certain notable instances greatly increased many of the vexatious political and social problems of the state. Indeed, for more than a decade after the railroad's completion, a deep current of popular discontent ran beneath the whole course of California history conditions in general were favorable to the creation of this spirit of unrest and dissatisfaction the economic life of the state was still undergoing a process of readjustment incident to the close of the bonanza period of eighteen forty nine industry and agriculture were not yet sufficiently developed to absorb the surplus population capital was scarce and interest rates almost prohibitive so far as the small merchant and rancher was concerned wages had fallen to a comparatively low level and a large influx of population to the cities had given rise to grave problems of poverty and unemployment the rural communities were as discontented as the cities ranching in california was essentially different from farming in the east and even where inexperience and ignorance did not result in failure and distress some whim of nature such as drought or flood occasionally ruined the crops and brought discouragement and discontent there was seldom a reserve of capital with which to tide over such disaster to the next harvest and crop failure consequently often meant the loss of the land as well as of the money and time invested land titles were uncertain and often the subject of expensive litigation which the ordinary rancher could not afford only a few of the agricultural products which now rank as the most valuable of the state were then grown on a commercial scale and the industry as a whole was not yet out of the experimental stage the knowledge of the best methods of irrigation was still in its infancy and the question of water rights had not yet been stripped of confusion by adequate legislation and judicial interpretation altogether therefore the lot of the small rancher was not such as to make him a satisfied and contented man he like his fellow-citizens in the towns and cities was inclined to radicalism yet edmund burke in substance once said that no englishman cared a fig for abstract liberty but would move heaven and earth for the concrete right of voting his own taxes so in california the political discontent and popular unrest of the seventies did not arise alone from a general sense of grievance but was also the product of very definite factors the effect of which men felt in the practical affairs of everyday life when therefore late in the decade the citizens demanded a new constitution for the state they were thinking much less of the rights of man though out of respect or tradition they had to say something of those too than they were of certain very specific and concrete practices to which they traced many of their material ills the chief of these grievances had to do with corruption and inefficiency in government the evils of the railroad situation and the political activities of the central pacific large land and water monopolies accompanied by unfair methods of taxation wages and conditions of labor and finally unrestricted immigration of chinese coolies the bill of particulars was large it remained to be seen how far these evils could be eradicated 
One of the most serious of the problems was that of government reform. Never in the history of the state had political standards been quite so demoralized and the responsibility of public office so lightly felt. The nation itself during this decade was passing through a period of political laxness of which such scandals as the credit mobile, the Indian frauds, and the whiskey ring were merely symptomatic. New York was giving to the world the inspiring example of the tweed ring. The Gould-Fisk combination was playing fast and loose with the welfare of great railroad systems, attempting to corner the nation's goal by control of cabinet officials and insolently damning the public in the bargain. In business and in politics, the whole country was suffering the worst moral collapse it has yet experienced. George F. Hoare's indictment of the period, severe as it was, contained nothing of exaggeration. On May 6, 1876, he made this statement in the Senate. Quote, My own public life has been a very brief and insignificant one, extending little beyond the duration of a single term of senatorial office. But in that brief period, I have seen five judges of a high court of the United States driven from office by threats of impeachment for corruption or maladministration. I have seen in the state in the Union, foremost in power and wealth, four judges of her courts impeached for corruption, and the political administration of her chief city become a disgrace and a byword throughout the world. I have seen the chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs in the House rise in his place and demand the expulsion of four of his associates for making sale of their official privilege of selecting the youths to be educated at our great military school. When the greatest railroad of the world, binding together the continent and uniting the two great seas which wash our shores, was finished, I have seen our national triumph and exaltation turned to bitterness and shame by the unanimous reports of three committees of Congress, two of the House and one here, that every step of that mighty enterprise had been taken in fraud. I have heard in highest places the shameless doctrine avowed by men grown old in public office that the true way by which power could be gained in the Republic is to bribe the people with the offices created for their service, and the true end for which it should be used when gained is the promotion of selfish ambition and the gratification of personal revenge. I have heard that suspicion haunts the footsteps of the trusted companions of the president. As already intimated, California politics in the period under discussion suffered from the same ills which Hoare found in the national capital and in New York. No branch of the state government was free from this low tone of political morality, but it was generally recognized that the legislature was more completely lost to a sense of political honor than any of the other departments. There were several reasons for this condition, apart from the general factors of corruption and inefficiency inseparably connected with all legislative bodies. The California legislature, unfortunately, had behind it no tradition of honest government. On the contrary, almost from the organization of the state, its proceedings had been marked by a moral laxness that frequently assumed the proportions of open scandal. Therefore, whenever the body came together, lobbyist and corrupt agent of every sort flocked to the state capital, where a man with money or favors at his command might do much to influence legislation. Again, the members of the legislature too frequently united second-rate ability with second-rate morals, and as the Constitution, 
naively framed on the supposition that public officials could safely be trusted with power, imposed few restraints on the law-making power of the body, and the combination was exceedingly injurious to the state. Complaint was made particularly against the free hand allowed the legislature in levying taxes, making appropriations, granting away franchises and state lands, and enacting special legislation. Even where no dishonesty prevailed, the organization of the legislature and its methods of doing business led to the enactment of hurried and ill-digested laws, most of which were crowded through in the last few days of the session, allowing all sorts of private interests to profit at the expense of the public good. William J. Shaw, a member of the California Senate, made the following trenchant criticism of these conditions in 1875. Quote, it is really difficult to comprehend how a legislature could be intelligently contrived to render it more certain that proper legislation cannot possibly be performed. The last session ended on the 30th of March, 1874. In December, our legislature passed 13 statutes. In January, it passed 39. In February, it passed 109. In its 30 days in March, it passed 518 statutes but we have not yet told all. Of the 679 statutes, no less than 518 were merely local or personal acts and of no moment to the state at large. No less than 32 were passed to permit county sheriffs or clerks to leave the state or for the private interests of some persons in the way of getting money claims allowed, justly or unjustly. Nine separate statutes were passed to enable school districts to build schoolhouses or to do something else of a like local nature. One statute was enacted to change the orthography of an unknown place, and two or more to change the names of some such places. Three several statutes were passed to prohibit hogs from running about in some of the counties, and one to prevent horn cattle. Several separate statutes were passed to make counties pay debts they apparently were not obligated to pay otherwise. One special statute was passed to authorize the county government of San Francisco to hire a messenger, and, I believe, one other to enable it to better provide for removing dead dogs from its streets. No less than 13 several statutes were passed at the last session and approved by the governor to repeal or amend Thirteen other statutes previously passed and approved by the governor at that very same session, so that even before the 103 working days had passed by, they found it necessary to begin again to repeal or amend some of the very acts the houses had just passed, and the governor had just approved only a few hours or a few days previously." End quote. Dishonesty, mediocrity, and confusion thus combined to make the California legislature an easy prey to many species of corrupt politics. Independent newspapers characterized session after session of the body as extravagant, useless, and corrupt. Outright bribery was so common that the San Francisco Bulletin, without any trace of sarcasm, congratulated the people of the state because the members of the legislature during one session, even though evincing ignorance and incapacity, seemed to be influenced in their support of objectionable bills more by political prejudice and personal ambition than by mercenary motives. 
what was true of conditions at sacramento was also true of the politics of san francisco the salutary lessons taught by the vigilance movement of eighteen fifty three had been forgotten and the city officials though no longer so openly in league with cutthroats and similar gentry had formed a highly profitable partnership with certain contractors and public utility corporations of various kinds the award of municipal contracts the paving of city streets the erection of public buildings and the various kindred enterprises offered rare opportunities for exploitation of the city's funds Quote, our official rascals may be set down as the meanest in america said one san francisco editor there appears to be nothing too small for them to appropriate they go for everything in sight from a horse and a buggy to the shirt studs of a suicide everybody who has any dealings with the city has to grease the wheels the city hall needs reformation almost as badly as the most notorious dive on the barbary coast faster than we can make note of them or take account of them rogues are being discovered the truth was the whole political situation of california as evidenced by the conditions both at sacramento and in san francisco was unfortunately bad the concrete effects of these evils in government appeared in increased taxes unjust assessments poor streets high railroad rates water monopolies and in a score of other abuses which brought home to the average citizen the significance of government he became interested in reform not as a political philosopher but because he wanted to save money inseparably connected with political abuses were grievances of economic origin foremost of these were the issues arising out of the transportation monopoly the act of eighteen sixty one incorporating the central pacific had fixed a maximum passenger fare of ten cents a mile and a maximum freight rate of fifteen cents per ton mile within these limits however the sole method of determining rates was to charge as much as the traffic would bear and perhaps a little more time and again the legislature had been importuned to enact a full schedule of freight and passenger rates to which the railroads would have to conform but the central pacific officials denied the power of the state to pass such legislation and effectually killed all bills of the kind whether rates as a whole were extortionate or reasonable is not now a vital question in spite of repeated denials accompanied by plausible figures that the california roads were yielding a profit or charged proportionately more than eastern lines public opinion stubbornly took the other view to the people of that day the swollen fortunes of the builders of the central pacific was evidence enough of the revenue-producing powers of the road moreover the assertion that rates were much lower by rail than in the days of the stagecoach that goods were carried much more quickly and that land through which the railway ran had greatly enhanced in value failed to convince the california public that the road was indeed a great public benefactor entitled to practice any methods it might choose there were also many features of a technical nature connected with fixing of railroad rates which the public of that day could not fathom and in which they saw only great injustice for example it is doubtful if many of the ranchers of the sacramento and san joaquin valleys could understand why it cost them more to ship barley a hundred miles by rail to tidewater than to send it all the way from san francisco to liverpool on a british vessel 
Similarly, an alfalfa grower of Kern County had difficulty in comprehending the necessity of paying $180 for the shipment of a carload of alfalfa seed when an equal weight of wheat would be carried the same distance for $60. The city of Winnemucca, Nevada, lies east of the Sierra Nevada Mountains and is about 400 miles nearer Chicago than San Francisco. Yet the freight rate from Chicago to Winnemucca was two and one-third times as great as the rate from Chicago to San Francisco by way of Winnemucca. The reasoning by which the railroad justified this practice was not convincing to inland shippers. The principles upon which most of these discriminations were based, for example that of the long and short haul and the lower rates for tidewater points, have since been settled in favor of the railroads but at that time they were an effective source of aggravation to thousands of shippers and cost the railroads heavily in public favor. Other practices, legitimate neither then nor now, were just as freely, if not quite so openly, indulged in to the further unpopularity of the railroad and the real harm of the public. Uniform freight rates and service prevailed only in theory and were determined largely by the relation of the individual shipper to the road. The Central Pacific was charged with granting rebates, discriminating between shippers in the allotment of cars, manipulating service to injure or favor some particular patron or community, and otherwise abusing the tremendous power which its monopoly of the state's transportation facilities conferred upon it. Suits brought against the railroad for real or fancied injuries seldom netted the plaintiff anything but loss. The most capable lawyers of the state were in the employ of the Central Pacific, and it was natural that the road should have a tremendous advantage in dealing with an individual opponent. Unless the latter were gifted with unusual resources, he could scarcely survive the delays, appeals, and endless technical obstacles which the company could obstruct a suit, even though the legal advantages were on his side. The success of the railroad in obtaining favorable decisions was not credited by the common opinion, however, entirely to the ability of its legal staff, for there was a feeling abroad in the 70s that judges, as well as legislatures, could be bent to do the Central Pacific's will. In the matter of taxes, the railroad also gave offense. Owing to the limitations of space, this subject, like many others in the chapter, can only be touched upon. Public opinion on it was pretty well summed up, however, by Volney E. Howard before the State Constitutional Convention of 1878. Quote, it is said by Mr. Stanford, Howard remarked, that the railroads pay $500,000 in taxes, and it is shown by their official documents and reports that, if they were taxed as other people are taxed on the value of the property, that they would pay annually over $3 million but they are not taxed as other people are taxed. In my county and in others, they elect the assessor, and in my county, the road that cost on an average of 25000 per mile to build was assessed at $6,000 a mile. And land which they are selling sometimes for $10 per acre, which they received in subsidy from the government, they have taxed at a dollar per acre. End quote. For these and other reasons, the Central Pacific became the object of bitter and deep-rooted hostility in California, and men came to ascribe to it the responsibility for most of the hurtful economic and political conditions from which they suffered. 
another source of popular discontent in the seventies was the large land holdings which in some sections of the state reached the proportions of actual monopolies aside from the railroad grants to be spoken of later this land problem was largely a heritage from the old spanish-mexican period the sparse population and limitless extent of unoccupied territory together with the peculiar demands of a cattle-raising people encouraged a system of princely holdings in the california of early days the mexican government was most liberal in its grants to individuals and the secularization of the missions also threw enormous areas into private hands thus by eighteen forty six it was estimated that eight million acres were held by eight hundred grantees when the first rush to the gold fields started the newcomers paid little attention to these large holdings of agricultural and grazing lands but before long squatters and rival claimants began to throw the old system into utmost confusion title to many of the grants had not been perfected others were fraudulently held and in the case of nearly all indefinite or carelessly drawn boundaries caused serious overlapping and left large areas in dispute as population increased and mining ceased to absorb general attention the settlement of these perplexing agrarian questions became vital to public interest in eighteen forty nine and again in eighteen fifty following investigations ordered by the government reports were sent to washington on the subject of california titles congress however could not agree on any settled policy with regard to the california lands until eighteen fifty one in that year after a deal of wrangling the famous land act of march three was enacted the bill created a board of land commissioners before whom the grantees under the old spanish-mexican regime were required to appear with witnesses and documents to establish ownership failure to meet this requirement within a specified time caused forfeiture of title as this act worked out it was in reality a violation of the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo one provision of which guaranteed that property held in the ceded mexican territory would be inviolably respected by the united states under the bill however these titles were thrown into the utmost uncertainty an endless litigation followed the attempts of the commission to adjudicate the cases brought before it its decisions affected nearly thirteen million acres and as appeals could be carried from the commission to the united states courts more than thirty years went by before many of the claims were settled in the meanwhile two classes of persons suffered the native californians original holders of the grants were robbed by squatters squeezed by shrewd businessmen who lent them money at two or three per cent a month with which to meet the costs of litigation and other demands for ready cash and defrauded right and left by designing lawyers but the native californians were not the only sufferers small settlers men who had but little capital found land investments dangerous because titles were so insecure frequently those who bought small tracts in good faith were driven off by some more powerful claimant or compelled to exhaust their last resources in the courts to retain possession only in the end to see house ranch and improvements pass into other hands under these conditions agricultural advancement was slow needed improvements such as irrigation works could not be undertaken on a large scale 
and worst of all the land passed into the hand of speculators whose wealth enabled them to defend their holdings before the law and to keep them intact until increasing population brought enhanced values large holdings were also made possible by the methods employed by the federal government in disposing of its public lands while sound enough in theory these lent themselves to various kinds of fraud and evasion by which the speculator profited at the expense of the actual settler the state also aided the monopolist both to its own serious loss and the hurt of the small rancher california like many other western states had received princely gifts of land at various times from the federal government these included swamp and overflowed lands within the state boundary so-called school lands consisting of every sixteenth and thirty-fifth section of the federal domain in california and various minor grants for a state university an agricultural college and other public purposes all told the state thus received from the federal government nearly nine million acres of public land it was intended that this land should be sold to actual settlers for a fixed price of a dollar twenty-five an acre and while a good share of it was thus actually disposed of far too much passed into the hands of large owners commonly dubbed land hogs first and last the government also granted to the pioneer railroads of the state some fifteen million acres of california land much of this was of little value but other portions lay in the richest sections of the state the prices on this land nominally ranged from two fifty to ten dollars an acre but the railroad builders were accused of keeping the most valuable land off the market entirely selling it to speculators and buying it in themselves to hold for future profit on top of this were innumerable disputes between the railroads and those settlers who had preempted government land along the company's right-of-way the culmination of these controversies was a pitched battle between the regular officers of the law representing the southern pacific and a group of desperate ranchers at a place called muscle slough in tulare county the engagement resulted in the death of several persons and created an animosity against the railroad which a generation has scarcely effaced the land monopoly resulting from the various factors just enumerated weighed heavily upon the people of california holdings covering a half a million acres were not unknown and many counties were almost swallowed up by the possessions of a single company a careful writer a n young has estimated that half the available agricultural land in the state was thus held by only one five-hundredth of the population. The popular dissatisfaction which arose from this condition was aggravated by methods of tax assessment which placed a much lower valuation per acre upon land owned in large tracts than upon that belonging to small owners, or allowed the large holdings to escape assessment altogether in most sections the irrigation problem was also an acute grievance of the small rancher without water his land was worthless to build canals and other necessary irrigation works demanded large capital this the settler could not command by himself and as the formation of mutual companies was slow the large landholders generally got control of the available water supplies and extracted high rates from the small users or forced them to relinquish outright whatever land they had acquired. The evils resulting from this agrarian situation were undoubtedly magnified by those who suffered from it. 
not every large landowner had come by his property dishonestly or enriched himself at the expense of society much of the land held in large tracts particularly a goodly share of the railroad grants as already stated was of so little value that no one would purchase it at any price yet unquestionably the system was bad in itself and worked a great injustice to individuals and to the state not the least significant of its effects was the aggravation of the public mind and the stimulation of popular discontent Quote, it is the land monopolist said j m days in the state legislature in eighteen seventy five speaking for most of his fellows who gathers toll everywhere and puts a blight on everything he holds millions of acres of uncultivated land refusing to sell except at an enormous price he pays comparatively no taxes shifting the burden on industry he drives the poor into cities to compete with one another for bread as though abuses in government the railroad monopoly and the land situation were not sufficient to unsettle california politics and render public opinion impatient a business depression set in about eighteen seventy five caused chiefly by the great panic in the east two years before and aggravated by a wild period of local speculation in mining stocks which centered in the nevada silver companies the collapse of this excitement was sudden and complete and for a long time the air was filled with the debris of broken fortunes drought added to the general gloom entailing a loss of twenty million dollars to farmers and cattlemen in a single season the distress of these years in the rural communities was greatly accentuated by unemployment and poverty in the cities this was particularly true of conditions in san francisco where the industrial depression was most keenly felt by this time the city had a population of some two hundred thousand persons among these were miners who had drifted in from mountains with the closing down of the mines and all sorts of industrial laborers thrown out of employment by the hard times the irish element was large and labor unions had already begun to teach the working men the advantages of solidarity and the power of political action to the other grievances of the laboring population which embraced the sins of capitalism in general was added the more tangible evil of chinese immigration to go into a detailed discussion of the chinese invasion of california is impossible at this time the celestial coolie has enjoyed more publicity than almost any other subject of california history and if one should start to narrate his career on the pacific coast in anything like a comprehensive fashion there would be no end the salient facts of the subject however may be briefly given up to eighteen fifty a mere handful of chinamen had come to california by eighteen seventy six the handful had increased to a hundred and sixteen thousand of whom perhaps five thousand were women there were some merchants in this number but the overwhelming majority were common laborers or coolies mostly from hong kong or other seaport cities these coolies were brought into california chiefly by chinese organizations known as the six companies very wealthy concerns which had their headquarters in san francisco and combined many other activities of a mercantile nature with the business of importing coolies the chinamen came into california under contract to pay back to the companies the price of their passage and a certain percent of their earnings the companies in turn guaranteed to find them employment in california 
and to send them back living or dead to china from the coolie standpoint it is safe to say there was nothing obnoxious in any phase of the bargain once in california the chinese kept almost entirely to themselves did not understand the white man had no desire to associate with him and refused to adopt his customs or manner of life the californian on the other hand saw in the chinaman only an inferior being simple in some ways but cannier than a scot in others who lived in squalor and stench spoke an outlandish jargon worked with a patience and industry beyond comprehension worshipped strange gods suffered from strange diseases practiced strange vices ate strange food regarded china as the land of the blessed thrived under standards of living no white man could endure administered his own law in his own way through his own agents without much regard for the officials and statutes of the sovereign state of california suffered with helpless stoicism whatever indignities were thrust upon him partly because he had no vote and represented but the far-flung skirmish line of an army of four hundred million beings like unto himself no wonder california became alarmed the state faced irreparable injury if something were not done to keep the stream of immigration under control the fault lay not in dealing with the problem but in seeking to meet it with agitation and passion instead of sound statesmanship and common sense much legislation had already been passed before the discontented seventies to protect the whites against the chinese the foreign miners tax made life a little more uncomfortable for the celestials but did not drive any large number back to china exclusion bills of various sorts and under various guises either failed to meet the situation or drastic enough to afford some actual restraint were declared unconstitutional by the courts the attempts to check the importation of chinese by various forms of taxes was also tried without much avail and municipal ordinances many of them mere petty persecutions similarly had little effect dealing with even the local aspects of the question meanwhile the chinamen kept coming in ever larger numbers to fill a real economic need in the state he monopolized the laundry business and without him most families in california would have worn dirty clothes from one week's end to another or washed their own garments he became the universal household servant both in fashionable homes around the bay and in lone ranch houses where harvest crews had to be cooked for in the heat of summer over old-fashioned wood ranges he opened cheap restaurants in every city giving his patrons more and better prepared food than his white competitors ever dreamed of furnishing he began to raise and peddle vegetables to work in vineyards and orchards to show his age-old training in building irrigation systems and reclamation canals finally he was called upon by crocker to lay the central pacific tracks and from that time on did much of the unskilled construction and maintenance work for the western railways in the eyes of labor however this last arrangement increased the unpopularity of both railroads and chinamen it became one of the chief grounds for their denunciation of the central southern pacific monopoly and was a principal cause of much of the anti-chinese agitation in the seventies another very definite ground of complaint during this period was the burlingame treaty of eighteen sixty eight under the terms of this agreement whose interesting history cannot be told here chinamen were placed upon an equal footing in the united states with citizens of other nations 
They were promised protection, offered the privilege of attending American schools, allowed freedom in their religious beliefs, and given the right to reside in the country at will. The railroad use of the coolie labor and this American negotiated treaty prepared the way for some of the most shameful incidents in California history. Anti-Chinese agitation soon took the form of violence. In Chico, San Diego, and a number of other towns, mobs from time to time destroyed Chinese laundries and restaurants. But it was chiefly in San Francisco and Los Angeles that brutality reached its climax in open murder. The worst incident of the kind was the Los Angeles Massacre of 1871. The trouble originated when two police officers, seeking to break up a Tong War in the Chinese Quarter, were seriously wounded, and a third member of the squad killed outright by frenzied Chinamen. A mob of a thousand persons, armed with pistols, guns, knives, and ropes, immediately marched into the Chinese section, seized victims without any attempt to discriminate between the innocent and the guilty, overpowered the officers of the law who were seeking to disperse the crowd, and hanged at least twenty-two Chinamen before the evil business came to an end. Most of the lynchings took place on commercial and new high streets, in what was then the very heart of the business district, and though the mob was composed of the scum and dregs of the city, no serious attempt was ever made to bring the ringleaders to justice. Though the anti-Chinese agitation never again expressed itself in quite so bloody a fashion as in the Los Angeles massacre, yet the popular outcry increased year by year. By 1875, a sort of hysteria began to sweep over the state, and the phrase, the Chinese must go, became the battle cry of a frenzied crusade. Merchants headed their advertisements, our motto, the Chinese must go. A saloon keeper, speaking in the third person, exhorted his customers in the following poetic vein. Quote, his drinks are A1 and his prices are low. His motto is always that Chinese must go. So call on your friends, working men, if you please. Take a good solid drink and drive out the Chinese. End quote. A member of the state constitutional convention, who did not believe in any waste of words, introduced a bill with a single clause, Resolved the Chinese must go. The expression became the shibboleth of every second-rate office seeker in the state and was effectively used to appeal to prejudice and the mob spirit. This, of course, does not mean that all anti-Chinese feeling was founded on ignorance or class hate. Intelligent, sober-minded men, both among working men and employers, realized the seriousness of the problem and sought to deal with it on a rational basis. A congressional commission, state legislative committees, all sorts of organizations and scores of individuals set to work to collect statistics and information regarding the Chinese at home and in the United States. And though much of the data thus obtained was prejudiced and unreliable, it served the purpose, at least, of thoroughly airing every side of the question. With the railroad monopoly, the land monopoly, hard times, unequal taxes, a government in which the people had little faith, lack of employment, and the Chinese question disaffecting the masses of labor throughout the state, a capable man might go far in organizing the radical element for dangerous action. By 1877, the situation in San Francisco had become serious, 
and the labor unrest found expression in such dangerous demonstrations against the chinese residents and the property of the pacific mail steamship company as well as in such outspoken threats against the moneyed classes that the aid of a committee of safety headed by w t coleman of vigilante fame and the presence of three united states naval vessels in the harbor were required to maintain order these outbreaks in san francisco occurred during july the next month a self-elected leader appeared to take command of the hitherto poorly organized labor movement this man was dennis kearney an irishman thirty years of age who had been both seaman and teamster before aspiring to political leadership at this time huge labor meetings were held every sunday afternoon on a vacant sandlot on market street just across from the city hall here kearney showed a remarkable genius for mass leadership as a public speaker he sensed the taste of his audience perfectly and his harangues combined enough coarse humor with vigorous denunciations of capitalism in general and violent abuse of prominent business leaders in particular to make him at once a recognized favorite judged by his language alone kearney was as strong an advocate of direct action as the most rabid of modern syndicalists but his radicalism ended there though he urged a little judicious hanging of capitalists and stock sharps and called upon every workman to provide himself with a musket there was no actual destruction of property or loss of life during his regime kearney however was not a mere spellbinder under his leadership a party known as the working men's party displaced a much less effective organization called the working men's trade and labor union which had been formed some time before and became a very powerful factor in california politics while naturally strongest in the cities the new party also drew from the ranks of discontented agricultural labor and even formed an effective alliance with a recently organized granger movement among the small landholders its platform was remarkably free from the communistic doctrines then in vogue among the radicals for as so frequently happens fortunately for society the conservative element in the party far outnumbered the extremists and consequently gave a more moderate direction to the movement kearney maintained his leadership from the summer of eighteen seventy seven until the following spring but in may eighteen seventy eight a hostile faction in san francisco headed by the party's county central committee tried to read him out of control he was formally charged with trying to establish a dictatorship with party disloyalty and personal dishonesty with being more than suspected of selling out to the enemy with using indecent language and showing no respect for the rights of others with irresponsibility and even insanity if his opponents failed to make the bill complete it was only through oversight the night of may seventh eighteen seventy eight the kearney and anti kearney factions met at a mass meeting which proved anything but a love fest Quote, frank rooney one of the opposition said an account in the next morning's bulletin attempted to speak but was throttled and borne to the floor his friends sprang to the rescue and a scene followed the surging crowd clutched at each other's throats gesticulating and vociferating like madmen the sergeant-at-arms sprang into the melee striking right and left with his commendable impartiality the president pounded away on his desk with a police club but no heed was given to his calls for order 
Finally, he called out, Hold your ground, Rooney. Don't you go out, Rooney. At that, the treasurer, O'Neill, went for the president, but the sergeant-at-arms properly separated them. Kearney, who was not present when the melee took place, arrived shortly after his supporters had gained control and order had been restored. Called upon for a speech, he predicted a bloody revolution and denounced the county commission. The breach in the workingmen's party, coupled perhaps with money received from certain interests he had most vigorously attacked, brought about Kearney's retirement from public notice. He had enjoyed a skyrocket sort of notoriety and made his name a source of considerable alarm to the conservative elements of society. With more education and less class prejudice, his control might have been constructive, beneficial, and long-continued. As it was, though his party played a prominent part in the Constitutional Convention and filled some local offices for a number of years, its lack of effective leadership soon led to disintegration. Largely through its influence, however, the Chinese agitation was brought to a climax. Certain measures of a social and economic nature were embodied in the state constitution, and labor came to play a more important part in California politics. Incidentally, the expressions Sandlot politics and Kearneyism were added to the state's political vocabulary. Enough has been said thus far to show how strong the current of discontent ran through California in the 70s. The people everywhere were seeking relief, and as the best means of getting this, demanded a new constitution. The convention to frame this document met September 28, 1878. The political makeup of the gathering was as varied as the colors of Joseph's coat. Out of the 152 members, there were 10 Democrats, 11 Republicans, 2 Independents, 78 nonpartisans, and 51 working men. The nonpartisan delegation represented a fusion of those who were willing to break away from party lines to get the best men possible. They realized that reform in the state government was necessary, but wished to keep it within bounds and give it the advantage of intelligent direction. The convention elected Joseph P. Hogue, a San Francisco lawyer, president, and Joseph A. Johnson, secretary. Its sessions lasted until March 3, 1879, when the new constitution was adopted by a vote of 120 to 15. On May 17, the document was submitted to the people of the state and received a majority of 10,280 votes out of a total of 145,000 cast. One section of the press, under railroad and corporation influence, as bitterly denounced the convention and all its works as Kearney had denounced the San Francisco capitalists. And indeed, many of the resolutions introduced in the convention were either impractical, confiscatory, or plainly a violation of the federal constitution. Most of these extreme measures, however, were voted down in the convention, and though many of the provisions that remained seemed reactionary to the conservatives of that day, to the present generation, they appear extremely moderate. A large number of the articles failed to accomplish the good they were intended to bring about, and the intent of others was nullified by the courts, or so twisted by legislation as to serve the very evils they were designed to abolish. As a whole, however, the Constitution of 1879 was much more adapted to the needs of the state than the old Constitution of 30 years before. 
It is true that abuses flourished under it with all the vigor of a green bay tree, but the delegates to the convention had at least made an honest attempt to meet the needs of the time and to relieve the people of deep-seated grievances. They failed in many particulars, but in passing judgment upon them, one should remember that they were seeking to solve a perplexing variety of economic, social, and political problems with which the people of the state themselves were not qualified to deal. Even a perfect constitution would not have brought the changes men desired. These waited upon a more enlightened public opinion and on a higher order of business and political morality rather than on new organic law. End of chapter 27